Let's please look now to Luke chapter 6. We're in verses 12 through 16. And it says, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued to pray to God. And when he came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, Simon called the zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. We have before us here the calling of the apostles. And it's a very important time. It's the beginning of a time where Christ has many disciples and he's calling out of those disciples 12 men in particular that are going to serve as apostles that are going to be sent out. There's three aspects I want us to notice about this passage. The first is this calling, the calling of the apostles. It is preceded by prayer. And it's preceded by, by very significant prayer we are going to see the Lord Jesus is praying the whole night. Secondly, we see this calling was under Christ's authority. Christ is the one that called these men, and he had the authority to do this, and he was sending these men out for his kingdom work. And thirdly, we see this calling was at his timing and for his purpose. It was at a particular time and for a particular purpose that the Lord was calling these men to do his work. So first let's look at verse 12 where we see this calling preceded by prayer. It says, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. We see the Lord Jesus over and over in his ministry prioritizing prayer. I want you to consider that. Consider that reality. Consider that, that truth. There's been times, I believe, where we've been able to learn much about Jesus and his behavior, Jesus and how he has acted. And we've been able to say, if this is how Jesus acted, if this is what Jesus did, who are we to do otherwise? Because I find it very incredible that Christ would be doing some of the things that he's doing and how we could ever make an argument for us not doing such things. We saw him submit to his parents. Now imagine that. All of us could give reasons why we shouldn't have to submit to our parents or the things that are wrong with our parents. We can find many things that are in error about our parents. But all of us are, in fact, sinful people ourselves. Christ was sinless. And he was being raised by sinful parents. We see Jesus even going to the temple, going to worship in the synagogue, and the Lord using that. And his instruction in his life, Christ, the Son of God, who brought all things into existence from absolutely nothing, who came down and clothed himself in flesh and dwelt among us, he is there gathering for times of worship, gathering for times of teaching, times of prayer, times of reading of Scripture. Who are we to ever neglect these times ourselves? That the Lord Jesus Christ didn't do that. Who are we? And here we have Jesus at this time, in a time of prayer. Not not a quick prayer. Not even a a 15, 30-minute prayer. That might be an extensive prayer. A very extended time of prayer. It says he continued all night in prayer to God. And you see this 
numerous times over the ministry of Jesus. He greatly prioritized prayer. Times where he would leave the many for the purpose of going to be alone to pray throughout the ministry of Jesus. And we've got to list them. It's, it's, it's quite often. I see him even fighting at times to get away as the people continue to press upon him. We see that even at the time when he's about to be betrayed by Judas. They're in the Garden of Gethsemane. They're in the high priestly prayer, that rich doctrine that we have in that prayer. Is Christ praying there at that time? Are the ways this is neglected? Are the ways in which prayer is neglected for us, dear Christians, we who have been bought with the price, we who have been saved by grace and through faith? We're so slow to gather for prayer. We're, we're, we're so quick to find bigger and better things. The ways in which we get distracted during times of prayer. The ways in which we, we get distracted during, during times of, of worship. I was surprised to see this. I'm not going to go into the details of what I was doing at the uh, Southern Baptist of Texas Convention, but I want to mention one aspect that was emphasized at that convention two weeks ago, and that was that of prayer. There is this push from the leadership for churches to begin to have prayer meetings again. I didn't know churches stopped having prayer meetings. That used to be a very common thing that churches would have, either on a Sunday or on a Wednesday, that people would gather together for a time of prayer. <clears throat> and they're emphasizing the, the need for this. We've always had a prayer meeting here. It's something that, well, we haven't always had one, but for, for close to a decade we've had a prayer here on meeting here on Sunday mornings, and it is at, at 9 o'clock. And I'll say that other than street evangelism, which understandably has lower attendance given the demands and what's happening there, the prayer meeting is one of the lowest attendant activities that we have here as, as a church. And I want to use this as an encouragement to you to seriously consider gathering with the people for prayer. This is a time of great blessing. It is good for you as a Christian. It is, it is good for, for the church. It is good for the little ones to gather during this time. It is good that they learn to, to sit and participate in times of prayer and times of corporate worship. There at the time where the people are gathering on the Lord's Day to bring petitions before the Lord, to pray in adoration to the Lord, to pray in confession to the Lord, to pray in, in thanksgiving to the Lord. And I was reminded as I reflected upon this, reflected upon Christ and his prayer here, upon church history, the times in which there have been some of the great revivals in church history, the, the time where, where the, the spirit has really moved in the life of the church and it has gone out from the church to very much influence the culture. This, we have a culture here that was very much influenced by Christianity, not so much at its beginning. It's a great misunderstanding that this culture was just founded in 1776 and it was founded by a bunch of Christians and they established a bunch of Christian principles. There, there's some things that were much better at that time, but there's a great many things that were not demonstrations of spiritual strength. Abortion was fully legal when this country was founded. It wasn't until after the Second Great Awakening 
but there was a fight for it to be illegal. Senators, representatives, they would have a disagreement one with another. It was considered gentlemanly to go outside and to pull out guns and to shoot at one another. The way in which poor were treated early on in the history of this country, the way we see as the Industrial Revolution began to grow in the 19th century, and the way in which there was no real concern as to how children and their participation in the Industrial Revolution should be, should be considered in light of their humanity, in light of the fact that they're made in the image of God. These are all things that began to change in this country. We still have some of the fruits of those right now. Many of those things are beginning to diminish and we're going in a downward spiral right now in another direction. But the reality is that many of these revivals like we have seen in this country and in many others happened because the people of God were gathering together to pray. There was an overwhelming desire of the people to pray and, and, and to be changed themselves and to be distinct and to be different from their culture, to be more involved in the regular teaching and the preaching of the church. We saw this with the Moravians, the Moravian church that was planted even before the Reformation and the ways in which they determined they would, they would gather together and pray, that they set up a, basically a 24-hour prayer time Someone was always praying at some point for the work of missions. And they ended up, from this group of about 300 people, ended up sending missionaries out, <clears throat> over 300, to West Indies, Greenland, Turkey, Lapland. I don't actually know where Lapland is. Great revivals happened in the United States and Britain during the 18th and 19th century. They were preceded by great times of prayer in the church, people that were gathering together. You see this even biblical examples. Prior to Peter's great sermon that he preaches and, and, and the thousands that are saved after that, you see the people gather together in a time of prayer. Prayer is a crucial tool in the life of the church and it is something that is greatly neglected in the lives of Christians individually, in families collectively, and in the church individually. It's easy to see how, you know, the culture needs to change, this needs to change over here. And we can get very focused on the things outside of us that need to change. But that which we have control over, dear friends, is, is ourselves. It is ourselves that, that we can control. And it is ourselves that can take time to make time for that which is holy, to, to prioritize that which is primary. a couple verses on that. Philippians 4 and 4 through 7, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but at everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Look at the fruits that Paul is speaking of there that follow this thankfulness of heart and this time of prayer to God, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. That is a beautiful thing. That is a good thing, dear church. First John 5 and verses 13 through 15. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence we have toward him. 
But if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. That's a beautiful promise. That is the fruits of the work of Christ. We, We have access to the throne of God. Can you imagine if you had access to the president's office and you could request something from him, you could ask something from him? Imagine if you were in a country of, where there was great royalty and you could request something from the king. Very few people could do that. If you're a Christian, you have that opportunity. You have that opportunity to bring such requests before the Lord. It's been purchased for us. Christ bought this for us that he could serve as our mediator. And I can't help but see the beauty in this picture that Jesus, prior to calling the twelve, was here involved in prayer, very significant prayer. The Son of God, the one who was fully God and fully man. He was was not leaning upon the flesh. He was not leaning upon his own human strength at this time. They were about to go forward into battle. He was calling the troops that he was going to use, to use in a very specific battle that he was going to be in. And he spent time in prayer. Oh, what I believe we can glean from this, what I believe we can learn from this, if we can just grasp, just to see the ways in which Christ was involved even here. Because I find that to be shocking. I find that to be shocking, that Christ would be involved in prayer as much as he is. He's fully God, he's fully man, he's got this, he's got this under control. He's not even sinful. No, he prioritized prayer. So we see the calling here of the apostles preceded by prayer. Secondly, we see this calling under Christ's authority in verse 13. And the day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named disciples, who he named apostles. So the question we have here is, what's the difference between an apostle and a disciple? Many times we exchange them as though they're synonyms, as though it's the same thing, and and they're not. Jesus had many disciples. There's many who followed him, and the the apostles weren't the same. The apostles were called out of the disciples. If you say the 12 disciples, then you're basically referring to the apostles at that point. You're you're designating um, these particular disciples that were were called out. And disciples were those who were sitting under his feet, sitting under his teaching. And the idea of disciples, we talked about this a little bit whenever Jesus was baptized. Because you remember, um, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And so someone who was a disciple of a teacher, someone who was a disciple of a great rabbi, would sit under their teaching, but they weren't It's not like you were in college where you just went to college and you went to the class and then you took your notes and then you went home. They were very much around the teacher. They were um, a servant almost to the teacher. You see Jesus many times sending disciples out to go and do tasks. Go do this for me. Go prepare this room. Just understood that that's what you'd you'd be doing. And so John, when he makes that statement, and we covered this earlier in that in that passage but the idea is that John was saying I'm not even worthy to be a disciple of Jesus 
I'm not even worthy to be a slave or a servant of Jesus. Because one of the things that you could not require a disciple to do was to take off your sandals. That was reserved only for a servant slash slave. Someone in that category was the one who could be commanded to take off your sandals. And John was saying, I'm not even worthy to be a servant of the Lamb of God. I'm not even worthy to be a slave of the Lamb of God. It was great humility on his part to make that statement. But these apostles are those who were sent out. These are the messengers, the ones that are, that's the idea of apostleship is, is being sent out, being, being sent somewhere else. That's why some people will stay. People will say, well, there's still a gift of apostleship because people are sent out as, as missionaries. I don't like using that terminology because there's a great many people that call themselves apostles that are quite heretical, that claim that they have many powers, they claim the ability to healing, they claim to have you know, special revelation from God. There are no apostles anymore. Apostle, the office of apostle has ceased. There, there's no more. There's 12 and that's it. There aren't any more. Um, so Jesus tw- chose these 12 and this number had significance. When you hear the number 12, that's something that you can, you can recognize and see there's a significance in the number 12. <coughs> there's a significance in the history of redemption. So there's 12 apostles here, just as there were 12 tribes of Israel. And we've talked about this idea before about Jesus being this tabernacle. John communicates that idea with his wording where he says, the word dwelt among us. He says that in John chapter 1. And so Jesus dwelt among them, and that's the same word that was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for the word tabernacle. So Jesus is that tabernacle that's dwelling amongst them. And so Jesus is now calling these men out to go along and follow with him. We very much have a redemptive picture that is here, just as Israel was going about in the wilderness. Okay, and the Lord was tabernacling with them, and the Lord was commanding them on where to go, and he was sending them into the promised land to go and to cleanse the promised land, to go and to remove the Canaanites from the promised land. We have that idea here. Jesus is that tabernacle. Jesus is the one who has called these men out. And these are the men that are walking alongside them. He is the one that is sending them out. And you see him doing here spiritually what the Israelites were doing physically before. The Israelites were were physically fighting other people, physically removing people from this land that the Lord had declared they should go the disciples here are going forward, and they are, doing, they are doing spiritual battle. As Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. That's why he wasn't going out fighting with swords. The Lord is fighting a spiritual battle here. And so just as the Israelites were being sent, and the Lord was tabernacling with them, the Lord Jesus Christ is tabernacling with the people and calling these men out and sending them out and sending them forward this is not how the lord calls ministers now this isn't how this happens Um, people aren't called into ministry because jesus directly tells them to come into ministry There's, there's many people that will tell you that's how they're called into ministry or or that is the means that the lord is 
is using, all right, so you're not waiting around for the Lord to specially tell you that you are specifically called to ministry. There's, there's multiple ways in which we understand this idea of a, of a calling for ministry. And we understand it in, in two main ways. One is an internal calling, and the second is an external calling. And the internal calling is maybe someone that has, they has, have a desire. I feel called to serve in ministry. I have a desire to go and to preach the gospel. I have a desire to work in ministry in some way. Um, and, but that's not, that's not the be-all and the end-all. There's also an external calling. There's, there's a requirement that others recognize this reality, that it be recognized in the church of Christ as a whole, and it be recognized just as well by leadership in the church, and that's how it's understood. We have many passages that would help us to understand this idea. So we've got to be cautious that, 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 that you don't have just a, an internal calling. I'm called. I've been called to do this. There's many people with social media accounts that feel very much called in certain ways. And I think we would do well to recognize what Paul writes in Romans 12 and verse 3. For the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. So it's not just about an internal call or particular desire that someone has. I think that that is important. Sometimes there's some men that need a little encouragement. Maybe they, they don't see themselves in that capacity, but you can look at the man's life. You can see how he's carrying himself. You can see how he's involved in the life of the church. You can see how he's caring for his family. You can see what he's involved in. You can see very clearly this is someone that has some giftings. There's times where men like that need a little encouragement. Now, they don't need to be drugged by the scruff of their neck. They may need some encouragement. Maybe it's a humble person. They don't, they don't see themselves in that capacity. They're not naturally trying to put themselves forward in front of other people. David Shiflett was one. Uh, the man who planted the church, Grace Family Baptist Church in Conroe, he was one that needed some encouragement. So, you know, we think you have these giftings. We think this is a role that you should be in. We think this is something that you should do. Yeah, it's something, really, you think so? I'd never... I'd never thought of myself in this capacity. I hadn't gone to seminary. I, I was a businessman. I was a, I'm a salesman. I began to talk to him more and said, no, we, we think this is something that you should consider. You should begin to prepare yourself for this. The external call is important as well as the idea of the church seeing the gift of the person, the gifts in the person, the giftingness that that person has. We see this uh, in many places, this appointing that happens, elders being appointed, um, not coming directly from Jesus or Jesus declaring someone to be an elder, Acts 14.23, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, again, you see that again, this prayer and even fasting, <clears throat> they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. Titus 1 verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Um, again, 1 Timothy 4, 13 through 16. Until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep, clo keep a close watch on yourself and your teaching. Persist in these, 
For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So again, you have this idea of the leadership recognizing this and laying hands on the person and the people recognizing this as well. Both of those are necessary. The reality is, when it comes to ministry, when it comes to uh, service as an officer in a church, um, your, your gifts and your talents are not what is primary. That's not the first thing. That's unlike pretty much any other job in the world. But when it comes to ministry, that's not what is first and foremost. Um, the qualifications for ministry are overwhelmingly moral in nature, overwhelmingly. So someone could be very gifted in communication. Someone could be very gifted in speech. And they're falling short in one of these moral areas. They're not qualified in that. We see this in 1 Timothy 3 um, and in Titus 1. Uh, Titus 1, 5 through 9 says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put in order, into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He is not to be arrogant, quick-tempered, a drunkard, violent, greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to, to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. So there are skills that are here, and there's character traits that are here as well. There are holy requirements that are here and there may be people that are not qualified because their family is not in order in some way there may be people that are not qualified um, just for instance you have christians in in other countries where you have people that have more than one wives you have a polygamous relationship at that time and if you just tell the man you have to get rid of all of your other wives except one what happens overwhelmingly when that command is given is that they keep the younger wife and then remove all of the older wives. And so that's not the first command that's given out during these times, but that man could feel called to ministry. That man could be, feel called to be a pastor or an elder. The fact is he's simply not qualified to occupy that position. So someone could have a good personality. They could be popular. They could be likable. They could be able to communicate in many ways. But if you're not meeting these qualifications you're not qualified for ministry so Jesus was calling his apostles and he called them in a special way at this time he called them out from the disciples that were there and they were called to be sent out to to go out from him and it's we have this picture here that is very similar to that of Israel in the wilderness being sent into the promised land and Jesus calling his disciples in going forward and doing their work so we see this, this calling preceded by prayer, the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ during this time, prior to calling the apostles. Secondly, we see this calling under Christ's authority, that Christ was calling them under his own authority. And we saw even just as a consideration of how it is people are called, even nowadays, with the necessity of leadership recognizing someone's qualifications and the necessity of the church recognizing the qualifications and thirdly we see a calling at his timing <clears throat> and for his purpose we see that in verses 14 through 16 it says Simon whom he named Peter and Andrew his brother 
and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. These are men who were called according to Christ's timing and his purpose. The Lord called these 12 men, and it's from these 12 men that the, the world was changed, overwhelmingly changed. Things would never be the same. By, by the end of this generation, the gospel would be all over the known world at the time. Almost everywhere that Greek was spoken, the gospel had gone forward. And you see God's providence even there through the sinful activity of, um, of, uh, of, the, of the Greek general that came prior to that, Alexander the Great, and how he had taken over so much of the known world at that time and had spread the, the Greek language. And then the Romans had come in and built Roman roads going from one end to the other. And it was the apostles that traveled down those roads it's the apostles that were speaking that Koine Greek language that had been spread by Alexander the Great. And the Lord is providentially using these sinful actions of men to accomplish his purpose and bring the gospel, the good news of Christ Jesus, to the known world at the time. And I can say this about those that Christ chose. This wouldn't have been my, my top 12. If I was going and picking a list in the first century, I would not have chosen a bunch of people that came out of Galilee. I wouldn't have chosen these men who many of them are fishermen, many of them are not, you know, they are, they are unpopular in their culture. Some of the men in the group are, you know, would have been at arms with one another, with a tax collector and a zealot. And I find it very interesting. I want to walk through each of these names um, I read through Sproul's commentary on this, and I liked how he kind of walked through it. So I'm going to follow kind of with his idea here and make just a few brief comments on each of these men that are here, because I think it's very fascinating to see, first, who these men are, what we see in Scripture about these men, and then, secondly, what we see in church tradition. And what we see in church tradition, we don't take it as, as Scripture and understand it to be infallible, but it's something that, that for the most part, we, we can trust or Sometimes we can trust. Um, so Peter, Peter was the one that's always named first. Peter's the first one in this list. He was every other list we have of the apostles. Peter is always first. He was the chief of the apostles is our understanding, which is why he was always first. We see him serving in this leadership role. We see even Christ, um, uh, Peter taking leadership there in the, the church in, in Jerusalem, one who was very bold, but at the same time, whatever Peter did, he did with gusto. Whatever Peter did, he, he did with, with all his heart. And so when he was going after Jesus, he would walk out into the water. And even though he's walking out into water and he soon began to sink, um, Peter is declaring Jesus to be the Christ at one point, And then at another point, he is denying him three times, just as, as Jesus had prophesied that he would. Peter's primacy here does not mean that he's the first pope. Peter is not the first pope. The idea of pope, the office of pope, is not an office that exists within the scriptures. It is, is not biblical, and even historically understanding the idea of, you know, how bishops began to rise up in certain major cities, even in church history, 
the Pope of Rome wasn't always considered to be the one that was primary. What you had happen was Rome was the capital over in the west. It was a primary city. And so the, Pope began, the, the bishop in Rome began to have a lot more influence in the west. But when you look to the east, there were, there were men that were in many of those cities, bishops in those cities, and there wasn't this overwhelming recognition that the bishop in Rome was the one that was always to be uh, consulted. There's no basis for this at all. Um, Peter gives that, that famous declaration in Luke 9, just a few chapters away, that Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus says, upon this, basically is a profession, this is what he's going to build his church upon, this declaration that Jesus is the Christ. And also we have this understanding that Peter is, is this rock. And it's built there upon the apostles and this profession of who Christ is. But sadly, Peter, just a few chapters later, is going to be told by Jesus, get behind me, Satan, because he is, does not want Christ to die. He does not want Christ to go to the cross. There was much that Peter had to learn. Andrew is next. Andrew is known for bringing people to Jesus. Um, you see him many times in the scriptures and the gospels bringing people to Jesus. <coughs> he even brought Peter to Jesus. So Andrew brought Peter to Jesus, but Peter is still the one that was primary. Um, he was the first a disciple of John the Baptist, and then he began to follow Jesus as a disciple. I found this interesting. R.C. Sproul says that's why they named their church St. Andrews. They call it St. Andrews because they desire to be a church that brings people to Jesus. Church tradition tells us that Andrew was tied to a cross. The cross was in the shape of an X. He hung on that cross for, for three days, tied to it in agony and, and torture. That was his martyrdom. You're going to find this overwhelmingly. This is what happened to the apostles. Um, with the exception of Judas and John, uh, John that wrote the, the gospel of John, overwhelmingly they were, they were martyred. James and John are next. This is kind of the inner circle with Jesus and the apostles. You see um, many times Jesus, Peter, James, John, all together. James and John were known as the sons of thunder. These were, these were ones that were apparently very fiery preachers, ones that desired to, you know, Jesus just to call down fire. There's a time where he, they, command, they asked Jesus if he'd just call down fire upon this people. Um, it's also their mother that comes forward. And ask, well, would you, would you please make my sons one to sit on your left and one to sit on your right? Not popular with the other apostles that, 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 that they had said this. Um, Jesus said, you, you don't know what you're, what you're asking for here. Um, James would end up being martyred by, by Herod. We see that in Acts 12, verses 1 through 3. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter as, as well. These men weren't chosen because of the greatness of their high standing in, in the society. They were chosen by Christ for a particular purpose at a particular time. Um, and we, we see this, this friendship that's even there between um, Jesus, Jesus and John. Um, he's, he's known as the one whom uh, Jesus loved, the, the disciple who Jesus loved. Sproul says this. He says, on one occasion, he was scheduled to be executed. This is according to church tradition. 
He was scheduled to be executed by being boiled in oil, but somehow, and we don't know how, he escaped that fate. On another occasion, tradition tells us that he was supposed to be executed by the administration of a poison. Um, he was given the poison, and tradition says that he didn't die. He would go on to write the last gospel, and tradition says that he died. Um, he, lived, he lived a very full life. Philip's next. Philip's the one who makes the profession that Jesus is the Christ. He makes that profession very early in the Gospel of John. Tradition tells us that Philip went on to Gaul, which would be modern-day France. Um, and so the Gospel, we do know the Gospel ended up getting spread there. And so tradition says that, that Philip was the one that, that, that brought it there. Uh, Bartholomew is next. He's also called Nathaniel. And uh, Philip tells him where um, that they found the Messiah. Like they tell him, hey, we found the Messiah. We, we found the promised one. And he makes the statement, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He is declared as one who had no deceit. So this is a man who, whatever he was thinking, came out of his mouth. Maybe at times he, we all know people like that. Maybe they don't have, they don't have filters. And whatever the thinking is, is coming out of, of their mouth. And so Bartholomew is, is one of those people. Matthew, I found this to be so fascinating. Matthew, the tax collector. The tax collector, if you were to pick one of the worst choices to be a disciple, to, you know, bring Christianity to first century Israel, a tax collector has got to be one of the worst choices that, that you can pick. They are a people that were despised even more than Gentiles. So these are Jewish men who were working for the Romans, who were excising taxes from the people in Israel, they were then going on and using their force and intimidation to excise even more taxes than were necessary for the purpose of profiting themselves. You see, that was Zacchaeus. Jesus tells him to give back what he's stolen from other people. That's how they lived. That was their job. It was just expected. They were going to take what they could and then get a little more on the side. They would actually lobby with the various governors and tetrarchs for the excising of taxes to get that position. And they would, they would lobby saying, well, I can get you this much or I'll only take this much. That's the job that, that Matthew was in and Jesus called him. It's a reminder that, that, that Christ can call all kinds of people to his ministry and to his service. And Matthew's the one who, we don't see much, much spoken from Matthew, but we see Matthew writing the Gospel of Matthew. Tradition says that Matthew went to Ethiopia, establishing one of the first churches in Africa. Thomas is the one who famously uh, declared he wouldn't believe in the resurrection unless he saw uh, the wounds of Jesus and actually put his hands in the wounds. And so there is Jesus, and Thomas is shocked at that point. We have such a beautiful declaration from Thomas, though. Thomas says, My Lord and my God, kurios and theos. We have both of those Greek words there. Kurios for Lord, theos for God. And some will try to say, no, it's just an honorary term. No. He sees Jesus resurrected. He sees the wounds of Christ. He declares, my Lord and my God. Church tradition does say that Thomas went to, went to India um, planted churches in India. I met some people many years back that claimed that the church they, they were a part of in India was one of the ones <coughs> planted by, by Thomas. Um, it definitely was different 
it's been changed. It's, some air had gone into that church. It was, it was a somewhat charismatic church. Um, interesting thing about that church service when I went in there, I walked in a little bit late and I saw some open seats and I went and sat down in this church and I had some men to come to me and say, hey, sir, you're sitting in the wrong place. And I had not realized it because I don't normally see churches like this. The women were on one side, the men were on the other. So I had gone and sat on the side of the women. I didn't notice. I didn't think to look at something like that. And so it was embarrassing. I was like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Sometimes that's what's thought to, you know, people think that's what's going on in Corinth. When, you know, when, when Paul says that the, the women should be silent and should ask their husbands at home, that they were actually sitting on different sides of the room. And so for someone to, to talk to their spouse on the other side of the room, it was disruptive to, to, to the gathering and, and what was happening there. But I want you to remember that the gospel was able to go out that far because providentially the Lord had spread the Greek language as far as he did. And that's why the New Testament was written in Greek so that it could go forward and all of these people could go out and bring the gospel to them, bring these writings to them, speak to them, in this very common language, although they had ethnic dialects that they spoke, many of them spoke Greek, and so they were very easy, easily they were able to go. Well, not easy; it was dangerous travel. But the Romans had built roads, and so there were roads going all across the empire, and the language that they spoke was was Greek, and that was something that was very necessary. Providentially, things are happening at this particular time. The Lord has ordained that these things would happen at this particular time and there's things that happened that made this possible next we have james the son of alphaeus simon who was called the zealot and judas the son of, of james james the son of alphaeus we know very little about james uh, tradition says that he went to spain we have simon the zealot and this could mean one of two things either he was a very zealous person it seems more likely he was a part of a group known as the zealots and they were a political group that desired to overthrow the Roman rule, and they would participate in basically like guerrilla warfare. They would they would sneak around and they would they would attack the Romans in ways um, that you know, basically a small group of people, small group of people could do. And so it's fascinating that someone I I can't overstate this. I find it incredible that in the disciples, okay, that the twelve apostles that were called. You have Matthew, a tax collector, there serving right alongside Simon the Zealot. And I can't imagine that there were not conversations at times, and there were not things that they needed to work through and think through in, in uh, you know, just, just their lives and, and their experience. Um, tradition says that Simon the Zealot went through Africa, Spain, and Britain. He was martyred by being sawn in half. Um, Judas, the son of James, is next. We know almost nothing about him. Tradition says that he was mortared by being, being shot by arrows. And so these are the 11 that I've gone through. This is, this is you know, basically, these men are called according to Christ's timing. These men are called not because of their worldly standing, not because of their worldly education, not because of their, their prominence or their abilities. Um, if you were trying to go and overturn the world, you would imagine, I need to get all of the leaders, or I need to get all of the people that have the most power. I need to get the people that, that have the most money. I remember being on a mission trip in, in Monterey, Mexico, when we were, we were on a campus there. We were working at Monterey Tech, and we were sharing the gospel with people. 
And the goal was, it was with Campus Crusade for Christ, we'd go out and share the gospel, we'd try to get them to join our group, and we'd try to get them to go to a church. Primarily, we were mostly just getting people involved in our group. Very rarely, we were actually getting them into churches. But I remember talking with one of the leaders, and he said, you know, we're just walking around finding individual people, and, you know, they, they, they come to faith in Christ, and then we bring them to our meetings and we bring them to church, but if we really want to do this, I mean, we need to get the, the head of the football team. We, we, we need to go and, and we need to get like, you know, the people that really have standing and power. And I think that's great. Praise God when he calls people like that. Praise God when he calls someone of prominence, someone, you know, who has standing, someone like uh, Nicodemus, someone like Joseph of Arimathea, where we see him carrying a, a very, you know, valuable herbs to where, where Christ is going to be embalmed with. But that doesn't seem to be the Lord's primary method. That doesn't seem what he usually does. It, he, they're not, it's not as though wealthy, rich, powerful people are excluded from the kingdom. They're very much involved and they're saved. But it doesn't seem that that's the Lord's strategy is to always go for such people. Look at King David being called the youngest shepherd. No one imagined that David was going to fight. No one imagined that David was going to be king, and it's David that's standing there before Goliath. <clears throat> and the Lord did that to show who accomplished this. And don't believe those Sunday school stories that tell you, well, David was just practicing so hard with that slingshot. He, I'm sure he did. I'm sure he got really good with the slingshot. I'm sure he was great at dealing with wolves and coyotes or whatever else he was dealing with or lions. I'm sure he was great at it. But for him to go against someone like Goliath with such a difference in size, with such a difference in military ability, such a difference in you know, martial arts ability, it's totally absurd to think it was David's skill that did that. The Lord did that to overwhelmingly show the power of God, that God was working here, that God was fighting on behalf of the Israelites, that God was defeating the enemies of Israelites, which you see him do over and over as the people go into the promised land and the, and, the, and the warrior of the Lord is going ahead of them and the Lord is defeating them. You see the battle at Jericho? I actually heard someone try to give a rationale as to why walking around as they did and blowing trumpets and, and yelling was in some way a good military strategy. That's a terrible military strategy unless the Lord has told you to do that. They're going to throw things upon you. They're going to kill you if you just walk around. No, it was the Lord that demonstrated his power. He's doing that here as well. He's calling these men who were considered by the powers that be, the sophisticated ones at this time, the educated ones at this time, they were considered to be more backwards up here from Galilee, coming out of Nazareth. I mean, the Lord's been showing this throughout this time. Jesus born, yes, in the lineage of David, but in very humble means. Being even born there where, where, where cattle, where, where animals are fed, that's the place where he was born. He wasn't born. He wasn't born in a, a temple. He wasn't born in a castle. The Lord is accomplishing his good purpose. And now we have the most difficult one to deal with. That's Judas. Jesus called a wolf amongst the sheep. Jesus called this man, but he was, he, was, he was disqualified. The truth is you do have evil men that are attracted to ministry, evil men that are 
attracted to prominence and, and power. You can find them throughout the internet. You can find them. I don't watch television much, but I do know that there used to be stations where there would be prominent heretics, prominent wolves in sheep clothing. They would be declaring to people the gospel that was no gospel at all, would be seeking to just basically take people's retirement from them. Evil men attracted to such things. Judas was one of these. The difficulty that we have with this is that you can see someone who is evil, and you can say, look, God ordained all that has come to pass, all right? And yet, secondarily, the causes that brought that into existence are these actions of men, the sinful actions of men. We call that the second cause there in the confession. We have the Lord ordaining Judas, and then we have Jesus being the second cause. Jesus calls him as an apostle. And it's clear in Scripture that Jesus knew early on that Judas was a traitor. Jesus also knew the heart of men. Jesus knew the deceitfulness of sinful men. And I can't tell you exactly why Judas was called, just as I can't tell you why a great many tragedies have happened in this world. But we can reflect on some of the things that that we've talked about more recently and Most recently, we walked through the third chapter of the Confession. We talked about the decree of God, and we talked about the story of Joseph, the fact that the Lord used the sinful actions of men to accomplish his purpose, to even save the lives of those sinful men, that the Lord used the jealousy of Joseph's brothers to sell him into slavery, that he would go and he would suffer abuse and difficulty and pain, as he went off into Egypt, as he would end up in, in prison, falsely accused by a man's wife, though he was doing what is righteous. And Joseph would end up second in command in Egypt because he was obedient to the Lord, and the Lord put him in the place where he would have him. And it's because of what the Lord had done, using even the sinful actions of Joseph's brothers, that Judah, the line, was saved, and that's the line that the Messiah is going to come out of. Same is true here with Christ. We see that even more so. We, we can see so much tragedy and difficulty, and we can ask our question, ourselves, why is this happening, or why is this tragedy happening? We don't ultimately know specifically each and every one, but I do find both of these stories something that gives me great comfort. <coughs> because when I think of Christ... And I think of the tragedy that happened in his death. The Lord even ordained the actions, used the actions of sinful men to accomplish his purpose. We see Peter talk about this in Acts 2, beginning in verse 22. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan And foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He talks about how even Herod and Pontius Pilate did what the Lord had predestined them to do. The Lord used Judas at this time. The Lord used Judas for his own purpose. The Lord used Judas at this time. And even the sinful actions of Judas, Judas was acting on his own. The Lord never made Judas act in the ways that he did. He was acting out of a sinful heart. 
But the Lord used even the sinful actions of Judas and the sinful actions of many other people in the process of Christ being falsely accused, Christ being brought forward, Christ being crucified, that you can have life, that that can be gained for you, that Christ Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, can purchase for his people eternal life, that Christ, through his death, through his passive obedience, would take upon himself the fullness of the consequences of sins of his people. That the wrath of God would no longer abide over them. That they would be free of the consequences of sin. And Christ Jesus also blessed his people through his active obedience. Scriptures say that Jesus was obedient in every way. He never sinned. Not at one point. Not from the heart never had a sinful desire was perfect in every respect this is in contrast to Adam Adam was our first father he sinned he he granted to those that came after him death but Jesus was obedient Jesus was obedient in every way and he purchased for his people eternal life like we sang before his robes for mine the robes of Christ are what we are are clothed in like that, that famous children's story. I brought this up when I was in Costa Rica. That beautiful story R.C. Sproul wrote of the priest with dirty clothes that went to see the king. And he fell in the mud and his clothes became dirty. And he tried to clean his clothes. He scrubbed his clothes. He washed his clothes. As he scrubbed them and washed them even more, his clothing just became more and more filthy. His hands were dirty. He had no ability to clean his garments. But the son of the king came forward and he gave to him his clothing. And he took the dirty clothes of the priest and he put them on. And it was at that time the priest was able to go and to see the king for he was wearing the garments of the son of the king. And that's what we have in Christ Jesus. If you are in fact in Christ Jesus. That's the message that we have. That's the beauty that we have there. And we see the Lord calling these people for this purpose, which ultimately leads to the cross. These are the men that will be working alongside Jesus for the next three years. This work that is preceded by prayer. Don't forget that. The Christ praying all night. Oh, what we can glean from that, what we can gain from that. Oh, the times that we neglect your church in, in gathering for prayer bringing our petitions to the Lord. Secondly, we see this calling under, under Christ's authority, calling of the twelve, a reminder of Israel, a reminder of the twelve tribes, a reminder of, of God dwelling with them, tabernacling with them as they go forward into that land in this spiritual battle. And thirdly, we see this calling, which is at his timing and for his purpose. These people... This almost ragtag group that you wouldn't have imagined, that you wouldn't have gathered, that you wouldn't have said, this is, this is our all-star team. This is who we're going to pick to go and to turn the world upside down. This is the group that we're going to pick to go and to change everything. They were called at his timing and for his purpose, that he would go forward in obedience upon the cross and die as a propitiation for sin, that his people could have life 
that they would gain the benefits of his perfect obedience that he's purchased for them. And that is there, dear friends, for each and every person who will trust on him, who will believe upon him. Any who come to Christ will in no way be cast out. Dear friends, come to Christ. See even the gospel in a message like this of these apostles being called, being called out of the world, being called out of the disciples to go and to walk in obedience to Christ Jesus, which would ultimately lead to the cross, which is the hope and the means through which we are saved. I pray you know this joy. I pray you know this hope. I pray that you have rest in Christ Jesus, that you will see this world as that which is fading away, that which is no, no true foundation. There is but a foundation in Christ Christ.